My name is Brandon Misha, and I'm here with my very good friend, Asia. And we are here to talk to you about a variety of things, really. But today is more about introducing ourselves, letting you know who we are, where we come from, and why we think we're qualified to talk about what we're <laughs> going to talk about. So we will just basically start with introductions and general overview as to what we plan with this. And then we will kind of take it from there. There is a lack of information regarding scientific proof in spiritual or metaphysical practices. And there's a lot of kind of new age stuff out there um, that it hasn't really been new age for that long. It's actually been, I mean, Reiki's been around forever. Mediumship has been a thing forever, but these are still things that people think are fake or there's a lot of- New age, as you said, right? Yeah, there's a lot of skepticism around it, but really it's not that new. Well, it's really not that new. It's ancient in fact, right? But there's no, there's very little science, like actual science to back up a lot of these practices. But I know there are people who have done some research and who do have information and studies about the validity of these practices. And that's why I need my doctor friend. So I think that's a good, very huge overview is basically seeing if we can get science to recognize certain aspects that it has up to this point not recognized. Right. Things that are undeniably at least interesting to say the very least, if not undeniably true, but things that are just not recognized in the scientific community broadly. Certainly not as it comes to application to treatment or education of doctors and physicians in particular. Um, we should probably at this point in time talk about who we are. Because yeah. so I am Brandon Michelle. I am a, a medical doctor, um, a physician. I was trained uh, in my undergraduate studies in psychology at LSU in Baton Rouge, and then started medical school uh, in LSU in New Orleans Health Sciences Center, where I earned my MD. And then I did my uh, residency in psychiatry. So basically, like the medical application of the study and the manipulation of neurotransmitters and mental health in general, but in a medical lens, through a medical lens. And then I did a year of a fellowship called Psychosomatic Medicine. They change the name every year. Sometimes it's consult liaison psychiatry, basically how psychiatry interacts with other fields of medicine with a focus on psychopharmacology in particular. So my expertise is going to be the psychopharmacology, and I'm also working full-time as a clinician still to this day. So my, my boots on the ground, I am treating people, and I'm seeing how we need more explanations to basically round out our treatment because we are, have a very hyper-narrow focus on what we are doing, and we are missing 98% of the human experience when it comes to treating the human experience. And that's the main reason I'm here, to learn from Asia, to learn from the spirits to learn from you guys, to learn from our guests, hopefully that we have, basically what is missing that science cannot explain, but is still something that can be useful to learn, to practice for doctors, non-doctors, for anyone. So basically I'm here from a medical science perspective, trying to learn as much as I can that about things that science is talking nothing about. <laughs> Excellent. Interesting because up until a few years ago, I was a science-loving atheist. Um, Brayden and I actually met in a biology lab yes. while um, I was doing my undergrad studies. I'm undergrad, but I never grad-graded. So 
have a bachelor's in animal science. Yeah, she has life experience instead, so yeah. she wins. So I have a bachelor's in animal science that I do practically nothing with. It does help that I do have a background in science. So I've always been looking for proof. I've always been looking for the answers to be spelled out for me. I want to see that it's real. So moving from a place of being an atheist, being somebody who's open to a lot more of these new age practices, I would have called myself a nutcase a few years ago. I would have said, what is this baddie lady? I might have called you a nutcase. You would have called me a nutcase. We would have made fun of people like me. But I've honest. seen it. Which is why I'm really passionate about getting it out there. But my whole experience started when my dad passed away. I just had, and we can go into that way later, but I'm just going to say we had this time where I felt like there was something more going on. And at the moment of his passing, my mom and I had a strange experience where we felt the same things at the same time. And we really believed that, that he had gone to the light and there was this release. And me being not a religious person, I found this a very strange experience. So, of course, I investigated. It actually led me to contact a medium because your dad said you're desperate. Like, I want somebody to tell me sure. where he is and what's going on. Even if I don't believe in it, I will try anything. And I think that's how a lot of people kind of come into the, the metaphysical aspect of understanding things. So it led me down a path where at this point I have physically gone places to research mediumship. I've studied mediumship at Arthur Finley in England. I studied the art of astral projection at Monroe Institute in Virginia. Um, I've taken mediumship classes with um, a really great local medium named Sid Patrick, and I'm a Reiki master. So She says she has no postgraduate work. <laughs> like, I'm nobody. No, so I've done, I've done my own kind of independent studies because I need to find out. And in doing my own studies, I have run across really amazing people who have given me validatable proof. And I think they need a platform. And that is why I call my friend Brandon, because we are hoping to contact all those amazing people that I've run across in my travels over the last three years and get them here to talk with us about their studies, the things they found, so that more people can know about this. I think that's what the bottom line is, spreading this around. Because I have to admit that in the you know science medical training I got, like I said earlier, you know I certainly did not get a full picture of life. And yet here I am fixing people's lives without enough information so that i'm thirsty to kind of fill in and complete my kind of understanding of what is actually happening in this reality and so for me it's selfish in that way because the quest for me but i That's agree great. i agree i think it comes from that i think it comes from our own want to to learn more and uncover more and we are going to learn things we are not just spouting off information to you that we have already memorized right i want to be surprised i want to be shocked i want to be wrong like, I want all those things. So we're just open. We're open to, to understanding and experiencing. And I think that's all the requirements we have uh, to, to view us is to just want to, you know, learn a little bit more, have a slightly open mind. That's all we ask. Um, yeah. And I think that if you do, hopefully, if we do our jobs correctly, which we will, <laughs> uh, we will offer you content that you find enjoyable with better lighting, video, and audio at some point in the near future. With funding. No, so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> in the far future. Uh, I wanted to kind of touch on something because it's, it's just like the basics. I've already mentioned that I was um, an atheist, but um, just something really basic. 
I think that meditative practices are a basic thing. They're secular, right? There's people who have no religious affiliation whatsoever, but we've already got the science that says meditation changes your brain waves. Correct. Absolutely. So, you know, it is part of a holistic approach to psychiatry to recommend meditation. And if you break it down to the actual like scientific granules, it's because you can decrease your heart rate. You can like decrease your rate of respiration, and that in turn decreases your central nervous system's output of norepinephrine, which will lead to a more calm, peaceful state. You know, focusing on breathing only just kind of helps narrow your mind so that way anxiety and scattered thoughts don't overwhelm you. And so I would have to say that meditation's benefits would be, yes, you can alter your waves to be less beta, which is awake, and you can kind of alter them to be a little bit more kind of subdued, kind of slower. Uh, but at the same time, it also directly decreases your central nervous system's output by allowing you to have more control over your body, which is the feedback loop to your brain and all of that. So basically, psychiatry would say meditation is good because it reduces anxiety by decreasing your heart rate, central nervous system output, and increasing focus. That's all I know about meditation. <laughs> So it's accessible is what it is. It started out as a religious practice and had spiritual, but also physical benefits, which is why it was adopted by like the secular religion. Right, exactly. And you know, the, the techniques that we are taught to teach are really only breathing exercises. You know, what I tell most of my patients is it's a little bit different than what they teach usually, but it works best for me is, you know, breathe in slowly as much as you possibly can until you can't fill your lungs up anymore and you hold it till it burns. And then right when it starts, oh, that's good. <laughs> right when it starts to burn a little bit, you breathe out slowly, but not fast, as fast as your body wants you to. You, you gotta feel how good it feels to get rid of that, that carbon uh, dioxide that you're, that is like burning. You. And as you feel it go out of you slowly, it feels good. And then you have your lungs empty as long as possible until it burns. And then you breathe in as slowly as possible. So every molecule of oxygen is like a piece of relief. And so if you do that three or four times, that's all it takes, then you're basically focused on how good breathing in feels, how good breathing out feels. And it not much brings more. you into the moment. Correct. Like mm. delicious oxygen, poisonous carbon dioxide, and you are like feeling that. Okay. So I would say that there's, what, hundreds of thousands of billions of types of meditation. So let's just put that one out there. But I do think that the simplest forms have kind of one thing in common. A lot of times it's visualization. And it's really similar to what you're just talking about, except what I hear a lot in meditations is they say, imagine breathing in clear, fresh air with good energy. Now, imagine when you exhale, all things that no longer serve you leave your body with that air and so you're adding like visualization to that i wonder if that assists in your your body's mechanisms that either a release actual toxins like physical toxins and then b maybe release like energy as well I'm just not realized. i would say if not directly certainly indirectly because the visualization will kind of help you stay on task when it comes to focusing on that one thing at a time so even though you're breathing and focusing on your breath, a visualization should not take away, you know, it shouldn't add a distraction. It would actually help you keep on task more. So mm. if it just improves the efficacy of what that does or if it directly helps, I don't know. But yeah. I think that leads to a bigger question because this is like one of the main questions that I have regarding spirituality versus the human body. A lot of people who are super spiritual 
seem to think, and correct me if I'm wrong, anybody who's listening, it's there's some kind of focus on this, like getting away from the body or leaving the body or reaching enlightenment or like, you know, disregarding the body. But like, I think there's so much more to it than that because we are in a body. I think it's kind of silly to deny the fact that we're having a human experience. So the interesting thing to me is how does spirituality interact with the body? How important is that? I think there's just so many diseases and things like that, like um, Alzheimer's. There's no, like, I can't find a metaphysical explanation for what's happening to your soul when your body is experiencing something like that. So these are questions that like, I really want to look into. I mean, I can tell you that it's like a misfolding of proteins in your brain, but right. what's causing those misfoldings? I don't know. Um, how does your soul react to having a more limited brain as an organ to kind of process information and to interact with the physical world? Can't so, good well, the interesting thing is like mediums will report to you that if a patient passes, they die, they had Alzheimer's, as soon as the moment of their, their passing occurs, they're no longer afflicted with said, said ailment. So communication via mediums occurs as it would have prior to this person's ailment. So I just have so many questions, and we're not going to answer them today. Right, <laughs> But I have so many questions about um, how the interplay of, of the human body works in with trying to have a spiritual experience and, like, can it get in the way? Can certain people just not have certain spiritual experiences? Are these things for lessons? Because that's another thing that I'm not a huge fan of, but I know so many people subscribe to this. Um, everything happens to you because your soul signed up for this already, or it's a, it's a lesson that was meant to happen to you. And like, on some level, I really want to believe that because I'm a proof person, I have yet to receive the, the validation when it comes to accepting that fully. You know, of course, that one's kind of a hard pill. Let me know if you get that. Yeah, well, I'd like to know. I think hopefully we'll we'll reach people who um, who want to help us kind of understand something like that. Yeah. But as far as what you said, the the you know demented uh, brain. I mean, it's a brain. It's a physical, organic thing. And mm -hmm. I, of course, no matter what you believe in, I don't think too many religions necessarily believe that you bring any organic materials with you from this body yeah. into the next existence. So it would make sense that a brain that has dementia or Alzheimer's right. is a thing that is not an issue once you are removed from the body. It's a body thing. Well, you know? and then also in terms of like an out-of-body experience, right? There's there's more and more people who are reporting that they're able to do this, um, myself included. There's more and more people who are, are utilizing this to to get out of their bodies. And I don't want to advocate it as an escape, but I do want to say if you're confined to a wheelchair or if you're confined to a bed, you can certainly still project your consciousness or in, in my opinion, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think of that in a controlled way, like you've been taught to do and you are surrounding yourself with people who are also you know, <clears throat> uh, versed in that is a, is a healthy way of doing it. But in psychiatry, we do have a pathologized version of that. We do have out-of-body experiences, traumatic, usually related to trauma, where patients will tell me that their anxiety during a panic attack is so bad that it feels like they're hovering over their body and they see themselves in the stressful situation, but they don't feel it themselves. Or we call it derealization or depersonalization. We have dissociative cubes where people can just forget who they are or what they're doing and just go away. And they can travel miles, hundreds of miles across countries and 
you, they were just don't know who they are and they're in a huge state. Um, and so there are a lot of things in psychiatry that we recognize as science and medicine. We don't know why necessarily how it happens. We think it's a brain defense mechanism to prevent further trauma. Uh, if right. you are not directly <clears throat> experiencing this event, then there's no possible way this event can hurt you again. So it's kind of protective to make you as a balloon that floats <clears throat> outside of your body watching as a, as a perspective, as a, that's not the word I'm looking for. That's the right. Um, third of you, no, as a, um, perspective. I don't know. You know, as an observer. Oh yeah. Yeah. So basically, hmm. we have it, but it's not a good thing whenever a patient tells me about it. However, I imagine it can be a good thing if it's controlled and harnessed in a good way, which hopefully we can. Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. Do you know anything about near-death experiences and whether or not people who have had them report similar findings? No. Really? No, but I, I know that near-death experiences are, of course, reported in the medical literature, but I don't know of any conclusions that we can draw from the limited data we have right now. We really just kind of uh, look at them with fascination. Honestly, right. we don't really act on them or we kind of support a patient if it was traumatic, like a bad thing, then we try to help them get through it. But most of the, my patients who have had near-death experiences and had some sort of like concrete experience that they can remember and recount, it's usually either neutral or good. Um, and so it's not anything we have to work on too much. It's mm. something I support them through. If it's bad, then I kind of treat it as a post-traumatic stress disorder type uh, anxiety disorder where I will try to help take it away. However, in general, it's either neutral or good is what my clinical experience has told me. Neutral or good. That is interesting because I know um, a friend of mine, Jade Shaw, she, does, um, she did her master's on uh, like spontaneous out-of-body experiences. And she reported that most people who had uh, near-death experiences or spontaneous out-of-body experiences shared a lot of things in common. And she said that losing the fear of death was one of them because they left their body in that out-of-body near-death experience. And they confirmed that they were more than a physical body and came back to their body with a, with a greater sense of purpose and less fear of actually dying. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I think death is the great teacher. I think, I don't know how to overstate that. Uh, basically, you cannot learn enough from death. If you are so comfortable with death, where you are no longer afraid of it, you have conquered life. I can't imagine anything else uh, being so more informative, intimidating, terrifying, and elucidating at the same time as death. And so I think death is the great teacher. I think we should always respect it. And if we can decrease or reduce our fear as the ultimate victory or an ultimate victory. Wouldn't you, would you agree that in modern society, it's something that we avoid and it's a topic that really just doesn't get talked about enough? Absolutely. I mean, if you talk about it too much, then you, what people are like, mm, so right. this person is a little bit perseverative on death, there right. must be something wrong with them. But that doesn't make any sense to me. You know no, what I mean? Yeah, we're marginalized if you talk about death too much because death is negative and it's almost right. like, are you suicidal then? You know, you're talking about death? No, I mean, people talk about birth all the time. What's right. the difference between birth and death? Well, okay, so lots of cultures would tell you that death is rebirth. Right. And that's the way we're like a positive way to look at it. And from a medium perspective, um, it really is. It's just a, a passing on to another another platform is existence. And if you learn to harness some of your skills in this life, you actually ease the transition of your passing. And it can ease your time here on earth when you lose others, when you pass on yourself, you know what I mean? Just, yeah, alleviating fear of death is huge. 
And I know that lucid dreaming practices are another like really good way that people kind of advocate for um, losing that fear of death because I think that's the, there's some Tibetan, Tibetan Buddhists, they do this practice and I'm not super familiar with the, the dream bardos and the dream yoga, but um, I know that they say that conquering the lucid realm gives you some advantage when you pass because life is a dream in a way. Well said. So I, <laughs> I am borderline devoid of, of uh, concrete spirituality right now is what I would say. However, if I did identify with anything or if I did have something that I felt rang true, it would be Buddhism. Um, and what you said reminds me of what the Tibetan Book of the Dead mentions about the moments before, during death, basically in this body, in this consciousness, we have work to do to make sure that we are in the right mindset to in, embrace that, right. that huge transition. Because if it comes out of nowhere and we have no mental or spiritual preparation, it's going to be one of the most terrifying, uh, you know, discombobulating experiences I can even imagine. But right. imagine if you were able to steal yourself and to kind of have it prepared, have yourself prepared for it. Mm -hmm. And that way, hopefully, you have less of a chance of getting lost and you can kind of direct or at least expect what's happening and therefore have a little more control of what happens next. What I'm hoping. And that's one of the biggest emphasis on in the Tibetan Book of the Dead yeah. is that you got to prepare yourself. The act of dying needs to be a sacred thing, not something that is like uh, avoided in yes. your mind or avoided in your body. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I agree with that. So uh, to touch on that, when I was um, learning astral travel at the Leroux Institute, one of the teachers there now, his name is William Buhlman. And he's written a couple books on the topic, and he is a huge advocate for astral travel being a training for when you pass. And um, his wife does, I uh, can't remember the name of it, it's when you assist somebody in passing over, uh, there's, a, there's a word for what Like in does. Western society, you mean the word? Um, yeah, maybe. It's a, it's a job. It's something like a hospice or something like that. Well, yeah, I mean, a hospice nurse would be somebody who takes care of someone who has six months or less so, to live and, and like focus on pain reduction and comfort and spiritual right. care, not getting the conditions so that get better. So more specifically than that, they, they co-write books together on the, um, she's, she's an expert in kind of helping people cope with death and, and accept their own death. And he is an expert in astral travel and they've co-written books together in an effort to assist people with accepting Let's get them death on. process. I'd love to. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, he's a great And the combination of them together. I know, right? That's kind of powerful. I love William Buhlman's books. Um, he, he's really inspirational to me. And actually, um, before I took his class, he mailed us these instructions. And it just, it said basically, try these, try an out-of-body technique every day for 30 days for at least 30 minutes and before you come to class. That's me. That's what, that's what my challenge is starting tomorrow. That's what you should do. <laughs> yeah, we're going to have Brit and have an out-of-body experience. On um, her time frame. On my time frame. In 30 days or less. So yeah, refreshing. maybe before our next guest comes on. That would be great. In fact, she asked me to see if we're if it would be convenient if I could Could you pencil this one in for me? It's, it's literally highlighted on us. But what I want to say <laughs> is that, it really is. <laughs> what I want to say is that, like, I needed the validatable proof. And so I did it. I did, I tried it every day for 30 days. And in that 30 days, 
I experienced physical sensations. I experienced like almost exiting body like multiple times. So not only is this something that happens spontaneously or can be induced by a near-death experience, it's something that you can train yourself to do. And it's something that you can validate. So um, the Monroe Institute, I know that Robert Monroe um, did a lot of research on this. And he used to set up studies where somebody would have, an, you know, somebody would be in a room, they would try to induce an out-of-body experience, and they would put something in a separate room, and that person would have to go into the other room through the out-of-body experience and validate what that item was. So I know there's evidence out there that, at the very least, we can project our consciousness to a place where we can physically view something that we've never seen before in another room. And if anyone's played Beyond Two Souls or PS3 or PS4, you know what you're talking about. But, <laughs> no. There's so much, wait, there's so much stuff about astral travel in like- Common media. Mainstream media. Absolutely. Doctor Strange, um, there's like, I mean, there's so many, I think Harry Potter has one or something at one point. Sure. There's just so many things that like touch on this and everybody who watches these things goes, oh, what interesting fantasy. And then they move on to the next thought for after five minutes, right? Instead of kind of diving into it to see what it actually But it's like derived from truth, you know? And that's the that's the crazy part. We got these ideas from somewhere. Right. So, yeah. Most of these ideas come from more ancient sources of knowledge than what the oh, entirety yeah. of Western society is built on. Right. I mean, Where did we go wrong? What World War II, the New Deal. I mean, just say, no, no politics. <laughs> <laughs> you promise. Actually, a politically, where did we go wrong? In my opinion, is when we started to hunt, when we stopped hunting and gathering, when we started to get food more than we needed in a 24-hour oh. period, and then we said, "Well, this is the food for the tribe. Other people cannot have it. It's for us." Mm. And so we have the haves and the have-nots, and that's where bartering started. So I think that once we stopped like grazing, hunting, and gathering, then mm. we became too much for the planet to sustain. I think that's what we went wrong. Okay. <laughs> in my I didn't want to know. Um, <laughs> no, that's interesting. You mentioned something about the tribe, which is something, it's a theme that actually comes up a lot when you're talking about metaphysical stuff because you've got these energy systems, and you, for some reason, you have these other people in your life that you wind up being drawn to and that you want to protect. And we kind of refer to those people as the tribes. So, so it's interesting, that, interesting. that you should say the tribe because as, as humans, we kind of like you know, uh, sectioned ourselves off into into little groups where we make sure that we're taking care of our small little groups. And know? a lot of that is due to limited mental capacity. I mean, the same, <laughs> we, we take as many mental shortcuts as we possibly can. Unfortunately, that leads to good things and bad things. Racism and, and any isms usually are mental shortcuts because we say, well, if we have two examples of X, then we can generalize that to every single person in that, you know, subculture oh, or anything yeah. like that. And that is the root of a lot of good things that help us be efficient as humans, but also a lot of negative things as well. But there's no doubt about it. Our brain will take yeah. the shortest route from point A to point B, come hell or high water, no matter what that, no matter what is sacrificed, including accuracy, you know? So interesting that you touched on that because um, a lot of discussions also involve um, how much of us as a human is dictated by our ego our ego, our identification with self. So I am a white woman, I am American, I am this. I want to put myself into these little categories. That is my ego that defines me as this person in this space, right? When you dream, I don't know if you have noticed that sometimes 
you don't feel such a connection with your ego, there's some things Certainly. that are ego-less. Certainly. It, there's a less of a division between you and not right. you. Yeah. Does that make sense? You're right. Yeah, but also um, you reminded me of something. What was the last thing you said? Um, you're egoless. I'm going to bring up Freud. I can't believe I'm Do it! <laughs> everyone, or a lot of people, but, you know, Freud, who needs to be considered with a grain of salt, this guy, okay, this is Sigmund Freud we're talking about. Everyone rolls their eyes, even me. But basically, we have the ego, and it's exactly as Asia described, right? But then we also have the superego, which is what basically are societal expectations of us. And so it's the way we judge our ego based on how much it's conforming to societal standards. And so if superego is really, really dominant, then that means our ego is going to be more diminutive and, and more molded to what the superego expects of it. But then we have below that the id. And that okay. is like our animal instincts to eat, poop, hmm. recreate, procreate, and get angry. It's just like the things okay. that are not necessarily higher order function. So yeah. superego is the, the, the instinctual, the ego is exactly as you described, and the superego is the external mm -hmm. pressures on the ego. And all of life is a balance between that ego and its desire to drop down to the basic desires of the id and its desire to rise up, rise up, to the <laughs> expectations of society, whether they be good or bad, it doesn't matter. That's just what it is. And so Freud had the basic concept of like the struggle between the inner self and the outer society and the result being you, the ego. And so Freud may have been a little bit right about that. Yes. Okay. In Robert Monroe's second book, Far Journeys, he visits a kind of um, possible future for humans um, that involves a kind of being egoless um, and kind of encompassing their existence. But you said something a minute ago that reminded me of something really important in this book. I want to remember what you just said. Was it about the, the animal urges of the id? Yes, it was. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> so he was trying to, he was in a national experience and he was trying to explain to a being who had never been, maybe too far on this one, but I'm going to go for it anyway. He was trying to describe to a being who had never been incarnated on earth what it was like to be a human. So they took, he took this being, well, it's just a, another, you know, a non-human being. This is just a non and this person was going to be on Earth no matter what. No, this person. He was person, making a decision whether or not to come onto Earth. His friend made a decision to come to Earth. Okay. And he was baffled by why anybody would ever choose Me to be too. human when you could be this other thing that they already were, I'm right? Good. I agree. So he already was this other thing. So he's showing this person um, the human experience. So he takes them to this, uh, basically like a little cottage and he shows them this person and the guy's like, well, what is he doing? He's like, well, he's eating. Well, why do you have to do that? Well, because you have a body. And then also he's you know, mating with his wife and he's doing all these things. And he's like, that looks very complicated. <laughs> and then Robert Monroe himself started to realize that, wow, there really is just the, the mode of survival and the control that it has over us as humans, the survival instinct, I need to eat, I need to reproduce, I need to do these things, like control so much of our lives. And if we were to ever eliminate the need for survival, like if we knew that death wasn't that big of a deal, I think that we might be a lot better off. But I'm worried that there are forces at play in modern society that keep that 
necessary. There you know, are. We have to expend 99.9% of our energy simply surviving in Western society, whether yes. it's the grind of a nine-to-five job to yep. pay bills and feed your children or whatever, you know, but yeah, um, definitely uh, think that there would be huge advantages to us as an entire species if we were able to reduce or, or minimize that requirement to waste that energy on just survival. But what do you think about the concept that really all we're here to do is simply withstand space time, that our only job is to survive, that if every millisecond that we have not been destroyed by space time is a victory? Oh my God, I don't know. That one, that one explodes my brain a little bit. Um, <laughs> that we are just here to survive. Yeah, we're, we're, we are vessels to built to withstand space time. Nothing more. That's all. That's terrifying. Terrifying, but in a good, comforting way. That scares me. <laughs> and this, this is very similar to the, to the uh, pilot of Deep Space Nine. Just so you is it so really? If you want to watch Star Trek Deep Space Nine to get a little bit of when they go through the wormhole and they land on something solid in the middle of the wormhole, there's a little bit of this conversation going on. So. Wow. There's, there's, science fiction. No, there's cool, there's totally like relevant concepts like sparkled all throughout science fiction. Absolutely. And I'll mention them randomly, annoyingly. No, I think it's great. <laughs> what about prayer as it relates to meditation, like as in prayer kind of being a, yeah, uh, in, in an outward request versus meditation? Yeah. You know what I mean? What do you think about, what, what do yeah. you think about, tell me the difference between prayer okay. and meditation, I guess. Um, something I remembered the other day as I was contemplating this, um, I never learned to pray, which is a really weird and interesting concept given that I was raised Lutheran. My dad would pray and he, and I thought he was a nut job. You know what I mean? Like, I was like, who are you talking to? Oh, can I curse? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, of course you can curse. We're not monetized. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, you're (laughs) monetized. Who are you talking to? Like, um, like you're crazy. You hear a voice inside of your head, and you think that this magical person in the sky is gonna is gonna grant you things and bring you things. But um, he swore that he had these like revelations, and he swore that he got this information that he was like um, is receiving from God. And you know, who can talk to God? Don't they burn? What happened to Jonah Bar? She heard God. I mean, nothing good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nothing good. I'm pretty sure that's what happened in general. And, and modern science would say she's schizophrenic. Modern yeah. science would say most authors of books of the Bible were schizophrenics yeah. having active auditory visual hallucinations. Right. I feel like I had a theory about that too, which is interesting because William Gilman mentions that he believes that some people um, in the Bible would have out of body experiences. And then also there's a lot about the, in the Bible about, um, there's a little bit in the Bible about them like meditating. So it's something that like the Christians would have done or early Christians. Well, what about the parts of the Bible that are locked in the Vatican? I don't, how can you take it? <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. The Bible is complete. <laughs> well, what about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Right. That's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Okay. What about the information about the Catholic God that is being withheld? That's a, that's a whole. Uh, no, I'm sorry, Catholics. No, that's a whole thing. <laughs> and I was, I was, I was, I was a little like I don't know if we're going to keep all this part in, but basically, I was raised extremely Catholic. I'm talking about mass every Saturday, Sunday, Sunday, uh, and also catechism once or twice a week for two or three hours. Like for seven years, I was forced to be confirmed at 16 or 15, and yeah. I even bucked against the system and say, I'm 16 years old. You want me to commit to this God? Is it, is it indoctrinated? Is that what it's called? Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes. When you're 
kind of morally bombarded with it and unable to have any other opinions. I felt that too. I felt that as a leader, though. Like, so and I, I felt the same thing. Like, they made me go to confirmation. They made me memorize all this stuff. It never meant anything to me. I never connected to it. I never felt like I had a relationship with God or with Jesus, which is why, so, like, after after discovering, you know, the whole metaphysical aspect of life and that there was this other realm, I wasn't convinced that it was God. I wasn't I wasn't convinced that there was a higher power that I was talking to. That's the thing is, I think you can get all benefit from religion without necessarily have to externalize you know, the, the power. I right. think that we have a lot more ability than we give ourselves credit for. And I do see uh, people uh, close to me who basically use religion as an excuse not to explore the unknown. So much. All the unknown is simply taken, it's God's will, and you have faith that you don't have faith. Well, There's no need to investigate, and I just cannot. Well, we weren't allowed to. That's blasphemous. Correct. Literally. You question, oh, what God is telling you, and you're told, well, you have to have faith. Well, have faith in what, though? You know what I mean? What am I? The thing that we told you to have faith in. Oh, yeah, I know. I, think, I, I, need, I need my own answers. That's why we're here. Right. And so when I, when I really started doing introspection, and I started going within myself and doing the meditations and whatever else I was doing, I realized it was kind of a form of prayer. And then my dad didn't seem quite so crazy anymore because he may have called it God and he may have been talking to God, but I was getting the insights and I was getting information that I thought came from something you know, external or other than myself. And so I think there's some, some merit to it, but, but man, why don't real religions like quote unquote uh, teach people how to pray or how to have a relationship with God? Why was that taken from us? Uh, <laughs> to further divide man is what I would say. That's horrible. I know, but I think to maintain or increase control over our behavior. But it has to be, right? It has to be what? It has to be that. It has I mean, to that's be my, that's what I believe. Humans, I mean. Yeah, that, that's the whole thing. When you get to a religion, remember those are designed, well, those are uh, popularized and codified and formalized by humans. So, you know, I think that any religion that is not based off of like bad negative energy that ultimately has a good message I think it could just be a different road to get to the same spiritual location. Right. And I think that it's just as long as you follow your road with a slightly open mind, you cannot right. just blindly. I think I think the concept of faith is comforting in a deceptively dangerous way. And, yeah. and, and I think that it's okay to have faith to a degree as long as it doesn't close your mind to anything else. Yeah, but it, it does allow people to, to relinquish control, right? Because when they say like, well, if this doesn't happen for me, then it wasn't God's will. What about your will? You know what I mean? Yes, I'm trying to be a little more gentle, but yes, I agree completely. It, <laughs> it hurts me when I see people think like that. What about your choices? Right. You still have them, right? You're going to outsource your own power. Why would you do that? That's the whole thing. Right. We, should we should examine and maximize this in this first before we decide there's a need to even look outside of us for anything else. I know. It is, it's kind of terrifying to expect things to just literally fall out of the sky and like help you. Like, if, if part of being in the human experience is this guided experience of, of doing better, shouldn't we have some control over it? I would hope so. Why would God just put us here to bumble around and like do whatever he says? What's the point of that? Where is free will if you believe that? Well, you don't have to know what God's plan is for you. Just no. know that God has a plan. And I'm not, no. to all religions, yeah, we, yeah. we mean this with like no disrespect for real. You know what I mean? It's just, this is where we are. 
and and this is something I and Asia has struggled with for our lives. And so that's just kind of one of the things that brings us here is yeah. I we I just rejected Catholicism, like with a capital C specifically. I'm not saying spirituality. I'm not saying like a a, a being. Although I don't personally believe there is a being. I don't know, but I definitely yeah. don't subscribe to Catholicism hook line and sinker. No. Again, that sounds like but I, a trap. But no, no, I love and respect everybody's path, right? Like you yes. said, each religion has its own merits and, and it is still a path to your fulfillment. It is still a path to what, what I'd like to consider God, right? And I still have trouble because I, I was Lutheran. And so I still have trouble trying to figure out kind of what to call this like source power or energy or whatever, but I'm still not comfortable with God. Like me personally. And imagine where I am. She's light years ahead on her journey than I am. I'm just now taking, you know, the first baby steps and still, uh, you know, it's overwhelming to me. And if she is still questioning things, I mean, it's quite the journey. Right. I mean, I've confirmed, I've confirmed that life goes on after death. Um, you know, I've gotten plenty of proof on that. I've confirmed that my, my soul or consciousness can leave my own body. I have confirmed that, um, that Reiki and healing or other healing modalities have some place here, whether it be through visualizations, um, helping your body, or whether it just be truly through divine intervention, but we don't have all the answers to that yet. Would you mind telling me like a very brief definition or kind of context about Reiki in particular? Um, I can try. So Reiki is a, oh, so yeah. I'm not that comfortable with it because I never really identified with it so much. So what they kind of tell you, there's symbols associated with it. It's something that was kind of created by people. Of course. Um, and it was passed down with this, this secret uh, information because they didn't want everybody to get a hold of it. But it's believed that um, by either visualizing the Reiki symbols or uh, calling upon the Reiki symbols with their specific intentions, you can direct and manipulate energy within a person's body. But I was trained not to do it with intention, right? So I am this channel, supposedly, as a Reiki master, um, I am this channel that allows whoever is working with me on the other side, whether they be guides or, or ancient Reiki masters, to bring that energy forth from another locale that is not in our physical realm to the person that I'm working on. And the only things I can confirm um, are that I feel physical sensations in my hands. People who I do Reiki on feel, um, well, sometimes they report to be like a magnetic sensation. I'll do it on you later. <laughs> and, and is that similar to what you were mentioning earlier, whenever, before we had some technical difficulties, myriad. <laughs> but let's just say that we you what what go ahead no go, yeah. no basically she was telling me that she did have an experience while trying to communicate with her advisors her spiritual advisors that her hand was tingling you didn't really yeah, mention yeah, the yeah. significance of that but i could tell it was significant right, so right. What, what does that mean um it happens different for everybody so everybody uh who communicates and or does that will have sometimes different physical sensations um like my friend Haiti reports that when she's got confirmation from her guides that her hair will stand on end and she knows that that's a yes from them. Right? And we're, I think everyone can be familiar with the experience of your goosebumps and just yeah. getting chills or the hair on your neck standing up for no reason. You know what I mean? But I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't have that experience. My hair is into that, but not in the way that they do for her. 
Um, but when I do Reiki and I feel like I have a connection, I feel almost like an electrical, electrical pulses, feels like electrical sensations. And then when I, when I kind of stay in the same place for a while, I feel what feels like a, like a vortex, almost like a circle that kind of makes its, its way through my hands. And so earlier, um, I was using my pendulum to ask uh, my spirit guide some questions, make sure that we were good to go. And uh, I just, I felt a little, a little vibration, a little tingling in my hands. And for me, that was confirmation that the energy was true and the energy was connecting and working. And, uh, and I cannot deny that every yes or no question got a very clear uh, response. There, were no, there was no ambiguity. It was very easy to tell yeah. if it was swinging in a line or a circle. Now, as a doctor and scientist, I can't tell you exactly what that means. <laughs> but I can tell you that I saw my own eyes and we, yeah, that's all I can say. Um, right. the, the closest thing as a, a human being who is a doctor trying to increase the spiritual side of himself is that I have been able to achieve a lucid dream once in my entire life. I lived in Australia in 2006 or seven, whenever I was 17 years old. And I remember for about a week, I told myself, I read on the internet how to do it, of course, because where else do you get the information from? I said, I said, uh, I was laying in bed at night, closed my eyes, and before I went to sleep, I would repeat three things over and over again. I am going to fall mantra. asleep. A, a mantra. I'm going to fall asleep. I am going to dream. And I am going to be aware that it is a dream. And I just repeated those three things as I went to bed. And on the fifth or sixth night, it, I, I, was, I dreamed I was, in a, I was trapped in a room with four walls and no doors. And each wall was like a different activity. And the fourth one was flying. And so of course, once I got to the last one, I started flying, I immediately woke up. So it felt like it was like a seven to 10 minute long dream. I don't That's know great. how long it was. I was never able to do it again, but I never really right. applied the discipline to do it again. But that happened. I mm -hmm. dreamed, I, I was aware that I was dreaming and I was able to control it. And to me, that, that says a lot, I think, you know? Did you find that the dream reality felt very real? Like it almost felt physically real. I would say, yeah, because I knew that when there wasn't a door, I felt a little bit trapped. And so if I didn't feel it real, I probably could have just phased through the wall or something. And even there yeah. were windows, the idea of like crawling through the windows did not occur to me. And mm -hmm. yes, the, each activity on these walls was like a physical thing that I would interact with to show that I was dreaming. So yeah, yes. Yeah, interesting. Yes. Okay. I think a lot of people report um, when you become lucid that your environment becomes, um, some people say like realer than real. And uh, and that may be so like, sometimes I can see like really intense details. Like I'll look up to things really closely and I'll examine like a flower and I'll see like little white hairs on it. Or Those something. are the and things like, I should have done. I should have started with that instead of, you know, flying. No, you can, no, <laughs> I always start with flying. But you, and then it scares you when you wake up. No, I never get scared of flying, I've been flying. So wait, that's, a, that's an interesting thing because I used to have dreams of flying when I was a kid a lot. And so here's a weird thing that started happening to me. I had dreams of flying and for some reason I didn't become lucid because it's something that inherently I believe I can do, which is strange. But, but I've talked to some of my uh, medium friends about this and they report similar things that they've always been born with this inherent notion that they could fly. Therefore, it doesn't surprise them. And I almost like mm. fully, like when I'm dreaming, I just know I can fly. Mm. I, it's just like a boom. Like my ego part of me that says I'm in a physical body is already gone. And sometimes I'll just fly places. Cause like- That's, that's what we're I, doing before we inherited this body. Yes, right? So therefore exactly. it's, it's natural that we would have the inclination. Yeah. I don't know if I feel that. No, you don't have to. But I definitely uh, believe 
I definitely I understand where you're coming from. Where you came from before too. What were you doing? What reality were were you in? Where was I? You know uh, what I mean? I which um, which astral plane was I hanging out in? Where we were just dipping around all over the place because. When you, it, this is a mediumship thing also, but it is believed that when you pass on from this plane, that there are a multitude of possible places that you can go, including um, the heavens of all the religions, like truly exist because- Each has a little pocket? Yes. Because we believe they do, so we've consciously created a space where they're real. And but so if your consciousness is projected and it's an agreed upon reality, they call it consensus reality. Yes. And so this is a consensus reality. We have decided that this is a desk and then this is a chair and that this is my body. This is a, a quantum entanglement that we have decided. Upon. And in a much more like uh, scientific way that no one can deny would be like Western culture and society. The idea that money holds value is a mm. mutually agreed upon yeah, thing. Not real. Yeah, the idea that basically, you know, um, this, just all of the things that we blindly accept about being an American, being yep. a Westerner, being a um, citizen of the earth mm -hmm. is really a consensus that we've agreed upon that if enough people or especially everyone stopped assuming and believing that things could and would, would radically change oh instantly. Right. Yeah. Um, just to touch back on it, um, that, that futuristic reality that Robert Monroe visited in his astral journey was earth but it was earth removed of buildings it was earth removed of all forms of transportation and this is the thing people use their physical bodies just as a space to kind of walk around and enjoy things and put their feet in the grass right most of the time they occupy the earth plane in their astral bodies and here's the really crazy part say that you're in america and you want to go to japan leave your body, go to Japan, get in somebody else's body because there was no ownership of bodies. It didn't matter. Yeah, it's like a collection of molecules that are adhered together that are like a, a receptacle or a tuning instrument yeah. to channel the spirituality. So I can understand that. It was that in it's invasion this, of the body snatchers. This is, I know. <laughs> well, the cool part I thought about it was was uh, he Monroe asked these the people who were occupying the space, he said, how did we get here? How did humanity? get to this point and you said well eliminating the survival mode was huge as soon as people started to realize that survival was not the end all be all it eliminated wars it eliminated family because you could share things right you're not so worried about things being taken away from you i'm not so scared that i'm not going to eat tomorrow it's, it's almost like in a way going back to the tribalistic you know yes. before we like started hoarding food and, and resources but yes what was this book written as like future speculative fiction no so does he give us any specifics about how and when this started Wait, three thousand like, years is when he's i think so quote like the year three thousand no it's something like three thousand years approximately from when he visited and this is a potential projection of the future this is not definitely we're not locked into this no but this is some, this is a path that we can sounds take. nice and the other thing he said um he said how else did you get here what did you take advantage of and he said sleep school which means that this is big. there is half of our life when we are dreaming and sleeping that we have been taught is not valid or relevant to our development. This is an entire eight hours, hopefully, if you're getting a good night's sleep. A minimum of seven, if you're running my <laughs> <laughs> Of time we can be spent either communicating with our guides, communicating with past loved ones, um, learning things, right? 
there's lucid dreaming techniques where you can learn to ride a bicycle or do motor activities. And there's actually studies that have been proven that you can physically learn like motor function in a lucid dream and then apply it to real life without ever having actually physically learned to do the thing. Sleep school. You can use your dreams to create your own reality and environment. And so we're just literally missing half of our lives. We're asleep for half of our lives. I hate you <laughs> and I love you for that because sleep is precious. Wow. I, I, I like nothing more. The most painful part of my existence is the mornings. Every morning when I wake up, it's literal pain. <laughs> However, my God, do I love to sleep. It feels so good. And, and science says that sleep is important to any mammal because not only does it give our like, bodies a chance to like rest and digest, but we also have our cerebral spinal fluid kind of increase its level of, um, I don't want to say fluidity, but basically the rate that it's flowing. And it helps okay. cleanse our brain from these beta amyloid plaques and these things that build up to form dementia and Alzheimer's and sleep deprivation has measurable scientific deficits to our consciousness. But you're not depriving yourself of sleep. Your body is still asleep and resting, right? Your body is still going to register actually at even like deeper sleep states. Your, your respiration. So when does my mind get to rest? It's your consciousness. But I want my consciousness to rest. Well, you're about. not resting though. Aren't you still dreaming even if you don't remember your dreams? You still Most people, them? yes, I pr probably so. So you're still actively participating in something whether you like it or not. Wouldn't you rather be driving? No. You want to take a backseat. Well, okay. from where I am right now, yes, I'd rather take a backseat. However, I think that's like the beginning part of my journey, and I'm gonna be. It's gonna be much more resistance that I'm experiencing to that than you will or are. No, you know that's I mean? totally fair. Sleeping pleasures is all good too. I had a time when I was practicing astral travel so much that I was tired of getting woken up by the vibrational frequencies, and I had to just say stop. I had to stop myself from leaving my body because that can be exhausting. You don't want to mess with your sleep cycles to a certain degree. I agree. But the idea is to take, basically the idea is to flow back and forth from one to the other. So we're removing the separation of ourselves from sleep. Here I am asleep, here I am awake, right? We are trading back and forth between the two. So we're taking things during the day that we want to work on at night. We're working on it at night. We're bringing those things back into the day. So that's the, that's the only real goal here is to just kind of like ease the flow of your consciousness between both. And not necessarily see sleep as like a lack of things that are present when you're awake. Absolutely. And that's the difference. Yes. A lack of things that are there, but it can really right. just be a different type of experience. And you are you when you're awake. You are you yep. when you're asleep. Yep. It's just you're in a different kind of phase, like yeah. you said. But dreams are such a playground. And like, we can't deny that there have been miraculous things that have have been uh, achieved via sleep. I don't know if you know that Abraham Lincoln dreamt about his own assassination prior to I don't think I being assassinated. I think that's common knowledge. We can go ahead and fact check that for me after the fact. But um, so that's a premonition. You know what I mean? That is a little bit of insight into the future. And if we as a species and humanity can learn to, to harness even just like a little bit of that. Because I mean, that's, a, that's at least... 33.3% of our existence, you know, yeah. at least if you're doing it right. I don't know if you know this either, but um, for a year before my dad passed away, I dreamed of him dying almost every night. I think you had mentioned that to me briefly, but. Yeah. Uh, and it was traumatic and it was horrible. Of course. And it was real. And every day I woke up and I called my parents and I was like, is everybody okay? Are you guys okay? And they were like, yeah, we're fine. We're totally fine. And I have to say this because this feels and sounds sometimes like a horrible thing to say, but after having lived his death 
365 times before it actually happened and had this fear of it. His actual passing was nothing as terrifying or scary as my dreams. I, I agree. That could be shocking to some people. Not to so me. Weird, right? It's I don't even want to say it's weird because it's like I'm a training ground. It's a train. It's, it's training for the real thing, and I and a much Did less. Did I have to do it 365 times? <laughs> <laughs> so I think a, a much less serious example that I can relate to personally is, is my dog. I love my dog more than I love myself. Bradley is, and so I definitely he is 13 years old, and so I see him slowing down. I see his joints start to have a little bit of osteoarthritis, and it makes me sad, but. I just every day remind myself that it's limited, that he's here, that he will yeah. pass away sooner rather than later. And the more that I do that, the more my parents and friends are me like, <laughs> do you love him or do you want yeah. him to die? Like, I love him. And he's going to die. And he's going to die. And therefore, do I want to be shocked when it happens or at least try to prepare myself a little bit? So yeah. it's kind of like a joke when I do it, but at the same time, it's also training myself. Yeah. So I see this training and that's how I relate. It's nowhere near the same level of, of seriousness as what you experience, but that's kind of the way that I know that it can be useful. Yeah, well, there's a lot to be said for also um, joking around in the in the hopes of making things kind of easier to swallow or, or deal with, and I think that's okay. And, um, and you said it. Everything is sacred, nothing is serious. Everything is sacred, nothing is serious, and everyone is going to die. Everyone's gonna die. Every animal, every person is going to die. No, it's true. It's true. This body. And it doesn't have to be sad. That's no. the whole thing. That doesn't have to be a sad thing. It's a thing that you cannot deny and if you accept that which if you don't accept that you're going to die that's tell me all about that please and <laughs> yeah for the all the other viewers out there who accept that one day you will die then how could you not is my question why would you not want to learn as much about something the only thing possibly that you know as an inevitability yeah that's my there in between now and death who knows yeah. but death i know is going to happen so, so we should probably learn about it that's so true that's the way i look at it yes so we'll see. We'll see. i think we have covered a lot here i think we have what too. do you feel do you feel like we're coming to a natural end i think i think i think we, we are and <laughs> we're I think literally we should, physically yeah. coming to a natural <laughs> end and then also this how about that huh? this ridiculous podcast no I, I agree and i want to overwhelm everybody and and again i um, think we do a lot I think we did a lot as well, and hopefully with a little bit of uh, creative editing, it can be cohesive. Yeah, you know? let's talk about what we hope to tackle in the future, yes. just so everybody's got a little a little handle on that. Um, I'm really hoping to talk about this cool concept um, that I came across in my travels called human design. It is an amalgamation of a lot of the sciences. It is uh, It has to do with chakras, energy, um, I Ching, astrology, astronomy, genetics, biology so it's like now you're now you're talking my talk genetics biology physiology yeah yes and uh and it's it's melded together a lot of these like things that are all over the world and people people believe in astrology but they don't really know why people believe in the chakras but they don't really know why but i love that this particular science has melded them together so we're really hoping to talk about that we're going to go more in depth into the out-of-body experience we're going to go more in depth into funky things like past lives and, and physical healing and visualizations and all that jazz. And we're going to go into detail about psychopharmacology, neurotransmitters in your brain and how somehow, some way, the government says that I am allowed to alter other people's brain chemistry. <laughs> That's true. And I'll tell you about it, the, my journeys with that. He's allowed to do that. I'm allowed to do that legally. I do it 17 times a day. And it's, it's a little bit, um, it's a little bit mind blowing whenever I just take a step back and realize mm. that like I am messing with people's like organ that 
is the tuner for re their reality and their consciousness. And I am altering that. And what are the ramifications of that? And I think overall the structure, correct me if I'm wrong, is going to be an interview-based format, yeah. right? We intend to basically have each uh, episode be an interview with someone, and that will help us provide specificity on topics and at the same time give the structure that I feel like is needed in this format, but also it will allow us to cover an infinite number of topics. Yeah. Um, I just want to touch real quick on one thing that you said, <clears throat> because I follow a lot of um, a lot of people kind of on social media and whatnot who are doctors who have embraced this more holistic view of healing. And some of the viewpoints that I've noticed are that the medicine is there and that's good. And the medicine <clears throat> is used as a tool to teach our brains what to do so that we can then take control back for ourselves. And so there, I don't think there's anything wrong with using what we have on earth, these medications as tools and helping us as like a stepping stone to, to reclaim. Stepping stone. Yes. Agreed. Now, yeah. no patient agrees with that. It's very rare. Right. <laughs> Patients come to a psychiatrist I mean, it for medication. It, right? it fixes it in a right. way, but it, it does quickly, it. Quickly, sometimes, within six weeks, let's say, you know, <laughs> with, 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 mo with some of our most commonly prescribed and medications. That's so, so great. And I think it's really, really great for people, especially in a place where, where they don't know what else to do. And when, I, when I'm in a deep, deep state of depression, like, I can't decide to meditate like i can't take these steps to correct my own brain but but we have like i can't right and and, and i think you could right. but this is like you said it's, 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 a, it's a stepping stone like you said however the other end of, of that argument is the fact that like you know people need to have this like unrealistic level of performance in Western society. And therefore mm -hmm. we use them as like drug drugs, like Adderall and Ritalin and the vast majority of patients who come in asking for those medications, they don't have legitimate attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Right. They have, I wish I had more energy and I wish I were more enthusiastic about the mundane things I'm required to do in my life. Well, me right. too. I mean, yeah, me too. I would love that as well, but that's not what Adderall, that's not, that's not, so there's a lot of uh, like using it as a crutch to avoid having to do some of the spiritual work. Right. And that to me is something that I would love to be able to find ways to integrate more into my clinical practice, but patients so far, I, I've practiced in the South of America and some a little bit in Virginia, a little bit in other states in the North, but this, my Southern patients in particular, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I want my medication doc. And if I need any of the other voodoo that you're talking about, I'll, <laughs> I'll go to a psychologist or I'll go to, I'm like, you know, they'll, they'll do other things, but I am only a, a pill dispenser to the vast majority of my patients, unfortunately. And I would love this to be able to give me more ammunition to be able to uh, expand that and let other patients understand the importance of not relying only on pills as well because unfortunately it happens way too often to be healthy. Yeah that's why I'm excited about talking about human design because um, one of the one of the aspects of it is that when you learn to trust your energetic built-in decision-making mechanism it's going to often be counterintuitive to what society would indicate you should be. Doing. Absolutely. So I'm curious uh, to see what it takes to break down these kind of uh, societal structures that um, what are inherent in kind of making us sad, making us kind of depressed. Like, yeah, I don't want to go to a nine to five either, but like not everybody can just quit their job tomorrow. You know, we have Most to- Most can't, yeah. We have to find a way while working with 
this modern society and what we're given to work our way out of it. And it probably won't happen. I'm in not convinced. I don't I'm saying like I, I, when she says that, I, I struggle. It won't to, happen in our generation because maybe. it is a struggle just for me to make it through my work week. And oh, so I the know. idea that there's more has to, have, to be done. You have to get the ball rolling. Has now, to be right? done. If it doesn't start now, we're just gonna go further and further down the hole of these dogmas that need to be. And I see it happening all around okay. me, and I do. I want to do my best to make sure I'm not pulled down with that. Please don't. Yeah, I'm doing my best, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm doing my best. But yeah, all that's. Right. I think awesome. we covered everything. If you have sat here through this entire thing, bless your soul. We are so grateful <laughs> to you. I don't know you how are you get it. An amazing human being. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> and that means something because we said it. We, it does. We're, we're awesome. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. We love you and we are appreciative. Deeply appreciative. Wow. And it will. This is the worst it will ever be. I promise you. We'll only get better from here. You know what I mean? <laughs> this is just what we had to do to lay the groundwork so that way we can. Proof to ourselves that we could do it and also just get something out there so we can have something to give with an invitation for other people to kind of yeah. come on. So hopefully no, super fair. hopefully that we can bring some experts on, Trial get her. some learning going and shit. Mm -hmm. All right. We're done. Awesome. Signing off. <laughs>